Lord, may our souls know no other treasure than your love. May our hearts and minds be open to your word. May we seek not your word for others, but your word for ourselves. May you filter out of my voice and out of all of our ears anything which would seek to distort or dilute or modify what it is you, by your Holy Spirit, would seek to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if any of you have ever done the Belfast Hills Walk. I'm not even sure if it, if it still takes place, but I've done sections of it. A little bit of Black Mountain, a bit of the Cave Hill. I've also done sections of the Hollywood and Castle Ray Hills around here. Never done the whole thing. But each of the sections gives an interesting uh, and different perspective on the city that we know so well. And from the height of the various vantage points along the route, you get a different perspective. You see things from a different angle. When I occasionally take a hike up one of these hills, I, I think of the, the line in Michael Card's song, The Greening of Belfast, where he writes, Verdant hills like strong arms embrace a heartbreaking, heartbroken time. Verdant hills like strong arms embrace a heartbreaking, heartbroken town. I think it's a little bit maybe like what our Lord Jesus felt when he looked over Jerusalem and wanted to embrace it like a, like a, a hen would gather and embrace her, her chicks under her wings. I don't know much about Jerusalem's topography. It seems it's a slightly different from Belfast in that it was a city set on a hill. So these songs that we're looking at are Psalms of Ascent. You're going up to Jerusalem for the festivals. But it's also a city that had its own protective little shield of hills and fortifications. The city was almost like a saucer up on top of a hill. Belfast, Jerusalem. The other similarity, of course, to both cities uh, apart from the fact that both before long will have had the benefit of Tony Blair's diplomatic skills, is that both have had long histories of conflict and insecurity. In spite of their topography designed to make them secure, ideal places, you would think, to found a city in the eyes of those who planted the original settlement millennia ago, both cities have experienced great insecurity. In Psalm 125, the political insecurity that comes through in verse 3, the scepter of the wicked over the land allotted to the righteous, that political insecurity masks a greater need, a spiritual insecurity. There's a recognition that that some of us can be shaken at times to our foundation, verse 1. There's the recognition that some of us can turn away from righteousness and goodness, verse 5. But, verse 1, those that trust in the Lord. Verse 4, those who are upright in heart are secure. 
I don't know how secure you feel at times, but the simple message of Psalm 125 is that God's people are secure. The image of verse 2 is very similar to that famous verse in Deuteronomy 33 that says, The eternal God is our refuge, and underneath us are the everlasting arms. But that's a security that isn't simplistic. It's not easy believe head in the sand security, divorced from reality. It's a statement of faith in the midst of great insecurity. Like Belfast, in spite of the fortifications, in spite of the mountains, um, read for, for, for fortifications in Belfast, read army presence. In spite of all these things, Jerusalem was not secure. To the outside observer, one nation and conquering empire after another seemed to be besieging Jerusalem. If it wasn't the Philistines, it was the Assyrians, it was the Egyptians, or the Babylonians, or the Romans. And yet these people in the midst of that, in faith, they sang of security. They sang of being unshaken. They sang of being unmoved. They claimed that their security was built not on geology, but on theology. They sang in faith in verse 3 that the scepter of the wicked, meaning wicked government, anti-God government, evil regimes, would not rest, remain, abide forever over God's people. And that's the message of Scripture through the Old Testaments, through the history narratives, also through the visions of Daniel right into the New Testament, to Christ's apocalyptic sermons and the visions of Revelation. The message is quite simple in the midst of all those pictures, and that is that empires come and empires go. Governments come and governments go. Prime ministers come and prime ministers go. If there was no hope of respite, if there was a permanent evil rule, then there would be no motivation to do good. Verse 3, the righteous would just use their hands to do evil because what is the point? But the psalm points to the hope that recognizes that the reality of wickedness and oppression is there, but we need to look outside of that and outside of ourselves and outside of the current political realities for real security. The psalm is not an escapist psalm. Eugene Peterson points out that this psalm was written by somebody who didn't have anesthetics in his hospital, didn't have aspirin in his medicine cupboard, whose government didn't have billions to spend on national defense. Life for the person who wrote this psalm and for his contemporaries was often nasty, brutish, and short. And yet there was the living experience of the Lord surrounding his people, of him being their refuge. This was a psalm written by someone for whom pain and suffering were never very far away. I always found it an intriguing aspect of our recent political troubles. How often people, including many Christian people, had as their default mode for dealing with the problem a shout for more security. Bring in more military, spend more, put up more walls, erect more installations, untie the hands of security forces, then we'll be safe. 
didn't happen. Similarly, have complex locks and private security systems and anti-theft devices, internet security software and gated communities made us feel any more secure as a people? The only thing the anti-theft device on my car stereo has done is made it incapable for me to use it, as well as for anyone to steal it. Surely we know that our security cannot rest on such things. In a week when the last soldiers left the installations that were erected during the Troubles, we would do well to remember that neither is our peace to be found in new economic security arising out of peace dividends or in the new educational or vocational opportunities presented by a different political settlement. We would also do well to remember that the scepter of the wicked in verse 3 doesn't need to be a totalitarian regime, but that God's people can also find themselves oppressed as much by plausible philosophies of secular humanism and so-called tolerance as by the jackboot of fascism. And the warning is that there will be those, verse 5, who turn away, for whom it gets too much, who choose to get off the road. The message translates this Hebrew word turn in verse 5 as, as backsliders. That's possible. I think it's more likely defectors. People like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who we read about in 1 Timothy, of whom it says they made shipwreck of their faith. Or Demas in 2 Timothy, who deserted the church, essentially pulled away by materialism. That will always be a threat if our eyes are too focused on the problems of today. If they're too focused on the temptations of today, or the faddish philosophical constructs of today. In the last couple of decades of observing certain individuals who have fallen away, let me say this pastorally. I have yet to meet someone who gave up their faith for something lasting and permanent. It's always the temporary or the transient that just looms so large at that time, whether it be the brief thrill of an affair or the desire to get ahead in a certain job, being a Christian would keep them back, or the determination to pursue a certain relationship, or intellectual doubts arising out of some current philosophical fad, all of those have proved temporary. They're real. I'm not minimizing them. They need to be dealt with. They need to be pastorally talked through. But they're temporary. The affair cools down. The relationship never lasts the seemingly argument-proof logic of the alternative worldview starts to leak and give way to the next fashionable-ism. Meanwhile, through all of that, those who trust in the Lord remain unshaken. His arms embrace them like the hills around Belfast. They know that kingdoms rise and fall, and that in the midst of pain, uncertainty, and insecurity, their ultimate security is sealed in heaven. They can say in the colloquialism of the last phrase of that psalm, Shalom al-Israel, peace to Israel, 
relax, chill out. How come? Why can they say that? They know and we know that we can't do that ourselves. In a week where I found myself in London that began to look a little bit more like Belfast 20 years ago, this faith in God has to be more than blind faith, hoping against hope. So what's the key? The key, of course, is the first line. The unshakables are those who trust, not in their performance, not in what seems real that day, not in their morals, not in their security systems, not in their governments, but in the Lord. Although to many Hebrews, Mount Zion and Jerusalem were one and the same place, to the biblical writers, and as the Old Testament progresses, particularly Mount Zion takes on a deeper significance. It becomes the place of God's kingly rule, the kingdom of God. Earthly Jerusalem may fall as it did many times, in spite of its hills and battlements, but Mount Zion, the holy city of God, was unshakable. It endures forever. The kingdom, of course, which was inaugurated by Christ. The fact is that in Christ we don't just have an example of somebody who lived a life of trust and faith and hope. But somebody who through pain and suffering not only endured it but defeated it. So that we could relax, chill out, rest in the knowledge that no matter what evil might come, it will not remain, it will not stay, verse 3, forever. It will pass away. The Lord, verse 5, will banish the evildoers. That's the Christ who in the book of Hebrews is presented as our leader, the one going before us as the head through dangerous territory. It's, uh, the image is a little bit like a group of mountaineers roped together. When one falls, the leader is securely fixed to the rock and keeps them from death. That's the same Christ who said, no one shall pluck you from my hand. No one will take you out of my grip. Is it any wonder that we can be unshakable, unmovable, fastened to the rock that cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love? That surely is our security. Briefly then to Psalm 126, which takes up uh, this theme of, of security and, and, and trust, particularly with regard to the emotional effect that should have on us. If the message of Psalm 125 is that God's people are secure, the message of Psalm 126, I think, is very simple. And that is that God's people can laugh. Not something that maybe has been promoted from too many Presbyterian pulpits over the years. But nevertheless, something I think that is clear in this. I don't know if you've ever had an experience that was so unbelievable and good that you felt you must be dreaming. Windsor Park, September 05. David Healy's goal going in against England. For me, standing, looking at uh, a board at university, putting up the final degree results, knowing that I'd perhaps not done as well as I should have and realizing that I'd actually done much better than my wildest dreams. 
I'm still convinced the examiner must have been on something. Getting, getting a phone call to say you had got the job that you really wanted. A sudden appearance of an old friend or long-lost relative that you thought you would never see again. Maybe just arriving on your doorstep from the other side of the world. You know, some experiences when you think, I must be dreaming. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, his people, we were like dreamers. We never thought it could happen. Some translations have, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, in the NIV, for example, But I think that the link with verse 4, restore our fortunes, and the Hebrew is ambiguous here. I think the link is much better to go with the marginal reading in the NIV and with some of the other translations. When the Lord restored our fortunes. Yes, the exile was a pretty big example, probably uppermost in their mind. But the theme of the psalm is more than something specific. It's, It's basically a general statement that what God has done in the past, we pray that he does again. They recall instances of God's work and they say, it was so unbelievably good, it was like a dream. Crossing the Red Sea, crossing the Jordan, establishing the, new, the, the, the kingdom under David, the, the, the temple under Solomon, revival under Josiah, return from exile, rebuilding the temple. Listen to some of the words from Ezra chapter 3 about the foundation of the new temple. All the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid. Many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. Each time the people weeping and laughing in that heightened emotional state where you don't know whether to laugh or cry. It's unreal. It's a dream. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like people who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. I'm sure that for many of us, we have had some of those experiences spiritually. During a stirring praise item, for example, or listening to a sermon that really pierces your heart or lifts your soul, or encountering someone whose spirit just radiates Christ and touches your life, your own spirit wells up and you laugh. But the problem is that this is a psalm that has more than a hint of nostalgia about it. There's a sense when you get to verse 4 of this psalm that what it had been talking about was yesterday. This is today. Do it again, Lord, is the theme of verse 4. Do it again. The inference is that today things are dry because the singers ask for a revival of their spirits like streams in the Negev. We've all seen the, the pictures this week of the floods in England. It was interesting that Boscastle in Cornwall was mentioned in the news again, and we got a chance to visit that village just a year or two after the first flood that you may remember from about five years ago. The pictures of what happened that day in Boscastle were incredible. This little Cornish fishing village, which because it found itself at the end of a narrow river valley, suddenly 
was the victim of an incredible flash flood that you don't normally get in this part of the country. Without warning, a bit of rain turned into this torrent that swept away everything in its path. Now, those types of floods are not uncommon in other parts of the world, particularly in the south of the Holy Land, the Negev, where dried up river channels will suddenly, at the least bit of rain, fill up with water, rushing torrential water, and desert flowers will spring up virtually overnight. Today, dry and barren, tomorrow refreshed and beautiful. That's the prayer of this psalm. Well, it's seldom like that in real life, isn't it? But the hope is there. The hope is that at some time soon the Lord will again restore the fortunes of his people. There's a lot of rubbish talked about revival at times, I think. I think one of the biggest mistakes is to make it self-focused. I want revival so that I can be part of something exciting. I want revival so that I can be part of something spectacular, out of the ordinary, that no other church has experienced, uh, that I can gain something special, maybe a special gift, an unusual physical experience. The psalmist's prayer wasn't for that. The psalmist's prayer was rooted in God's reputation. He prays for revival today in verse 4 so that what happened in verses 1 to 3 would happen again. And what happened, verse 3? The nation said, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. That was the reason behind the psalmist's prayer. As a church, I hope that we continue to pray for this type of refreshing, for these types of reasons. That we pray for revival, but that we pray for it with biblical, godly reasons. God has restored the fortunes of this little congregation in many ways. I'm sure that for many of you here who have been here for decades, this revival of fortune at times has had you wondering if you're dreaming. We were like those who dreamed. But we make a fatal mistake if we ever become self-focused. We need our laughter and our joy to have its deep roots in what this is contributing to the kingdom of God. Our joy cannot be confined within these walls. The refreshing we all receive through God's work in this place needs to be felt elsewhere. We need to be helping the desert to bloom. The desert of our culture, the desert of our city, the desert of our neighborhoods, the desert of our workplaces. The streams of renewal that we're experiencing need to be watering and fertilizing those places so that it will be said by others who are not part of the Christian community, God is doing something great here. The last two verses promise something really great. It's a harvest image reminding the people how the process of sowing seems so pointless, so meager, scattering minute little seeds around on the dirt earth, waste, seeds falling into the ground and being buried, death. And yet wait a few months and it's a time of harvest. Sprinkled seeds have brought forth new life. There's a crop, sheaves, food, rejoicing, laughter. 
There's an intensity in these verses. The Hebrews literally, the one who's going out goes out weeping. The one who is returning will return. It, it, it could be a, an intensification saying that the one who goes out will certainly return with songs of joy. It could be he will continually return. It's an expansive phrase. What the psalmist is doing here is more than simply making a simple allusion, uh, like a phrase from a first-year agriculture textbook, chapter 1, first take a seed and plant it in the ground. A little bit like my flatmate's cookery book at university, where page 1 was how to make a cup of coffee. Incidentally, he made the worst coffee I'd ever tasted. But it's more than just saying, hey, if you plant a seed, you will get a harvest. It's the climax to a psalm of laughter. It's a psalm that began by saying, hey, remember those days when things were so good you thought you were dreaming? Well, they're going to happen again. Through the tears, there will come a time of joy. Certainly, intensely, there will be holy laughter. Harvesting is a, a biblical image of gospel ministry. We all know the verse, Christ saying, pray for workers to go into the harvest field. The fields are ripe for harvest. The image is that you spend time in sometimes back-breaking, soul-destroying work of living out the gospel, witnessing, preaching, being kingdom people in a skeptical culture, sometimes with very little effect. You find yourself alienated. You find yourself living by different standards. You will find it tearful and fruitless, but the harvest will come. The harvest will come. The old gospel hymn, we will come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Words for joy and laughter occur all the way through this short psalm. But holy joy is of an altogether different quality than superficial happiness. Peterson describes our consumer culture as being like a bored, gluttonous king that employs a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. We want more and more entertainment and stimulation, but that joy never penetrates our souls. A futile strategy for achieving joy is that we try to eliminate things that hurt us. We get rid of pain by numbing our nerve ends. Uh, we, we get rid of insecurity by eliminating risks. We get rid of disappointments by depersonalizing relationships. And then we try to lighten the boredom of that life by bringing joy in the form of entertainment and vacation. The joy of 126 is an altogether different joy. These people had been through exile. They knew the darkness, but they were so unself-focused that they were able with faith to sing about joy. Is this just fantasy? Is this just wishful thinking? I think of a dusty road. Two guys, maybe a husband and a wife, I'm not sure, walking with their heads down to the ground, gutted, shattered dreams, unfulfilled hopes, even broken promises. A stranger comes up to them, walks alongside them, and says, tell me about it. So they tell him. All about the one they'd hoped was going to change things. The 
the one they'd been led to believe was God's messenger, the one who was going to make sure nothing was ever the same again, their lives were going to be different, the world was going to be different from now on. And yet he went the way of all flesh. The authorities couldn't handle such goodness, such claims and promises, and so they killed him. And as they talk about this, he listens, and then he talks. And he talks about the place of suffering in God's plan. He talks about how this was always going to be the way things would have to happen. And then a while later, he sits with them. And he takes the bread off the one who was going to give thanks as the host. And he breaks it. And they see his hands. And they realize. And their eyes were opened. Their hearts were burning. Their mouths were filled with laughter and their tongues with songs of joy. And they ran seven miles back to Jerusalem. So uncontainable was that joy. They had to share it. Those who sowed in tears reaped in joy. I think of a garden. A young woman bawling her heart out. She had come to anoint the body of a friend. And even this last resting place was obviously not sacred to his enemies because the grave had been disturbed and the body gone. She now had no place to go to remember him, only memories. It was all over. She was desolate, inconsolable. And then a voice behind her speaking her name, Mary. She turned, and she's like someone in a dream. Her mouth was filled with laughter and her tongue with songs of joy. She runs to share the news, so uncontainable was it. She who sowed in, sowed in tears reaped with joy. The most profound commentary on Psalm 126 is the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The Lord Jesus, passing from death to life, offering us the supreme hope that our tears will be turned to laughter, and our desert places will be watered by his gifts of grace. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. How? By following the one who has suffered for us. By sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, as Paul tells the Philippians. Becoming like him in his death, and so attaining resurrection. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death, and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises I will ever give to thee. I will ever give to thee. Those who trust in the Lord will be like Mount Zion, unshakably secure. And those whom the Lord restores shall have their mouths filled with laughter and with songs of praise. Let's pray.